Good evening. It's uh, wonderful to be together this Wednesday evening at Center Point. We're studying the book of Ezra. We come this evening to Ezra chapter 5. Encourage you to look at God's word from Ezra 5, the word of our God. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God, of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Adak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them supporting them. At the same time, Tatinai, the governor of the province beyond the river of Shetherbozenai, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tetaniah the governor of the province beyond the river and Shithra Bozenai and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah to the house of the great God It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, 
These Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Shashabazazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to them, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on the site. Then this Shasabazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it is not yet finished. Therefore... It seemed good to the king. Let search be made in the royal archives here in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus, the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. In chapter 4, we saw the reality of discouragement last week as Pastor Bolt uh, faithfully taught from the Word of God and of the opposition to the rebuilding of the temple. You know, Ezra chapter 4 begins with these words, now then the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. Now, it is well known that we are in a battle We are in a great spiritual battle. We know that there are battles, that there are wars that are taking place around us, but we are engaged in a great and mighty spiritual conflict that goes back, as we were reminded last week, to the opening pages of the Word of God. When judgment came against the serpent, uh, there was a word of, of, of truth and promise spoken that the seed of the woman would be against the seed of the serpent. And this is a summary of the scriptures from Genesis chapter 3. The Bible is the playing out of this great conflict between our adversary, the devil, and his seed, and the seed of the woman and the promise of our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, we know the final verdict. Psalm 110 reminds us that our Savior Savior rules in the midst of his enemies. And we read later in this same psalm that he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses. We know the final outcome, that Jesus is triumphant, that Jesus wins. But that is then. And we live in the here and now, and we continue in the midst of warfare just as those who have gone before us, including those that we read in the book of Ezra. And this warfare has effects on us, just as it did the people in Ezra's own day. Or we read of that in verses four and five of chapter four, 
again, that was studied in much more detail last week. Then the people of the land discouraged, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, or Darius, the king of Persia. Discouragement. Discouragement can set in, and it can be crippling. I'm sure each of us have faced discouragement. Yesterday, a pastor uh, spoke of the struggles he was encountering in his church and the discouragement, the difficulty, the spiritual lethargy that he was having to battle because of the spiritual conflict. Um, A Sunday school teacher recently talked about how that she loves her kids but was struggling with the behavior of a couple of them in such a way that she was tempted to maybe cast in the towel. Was her work making any difference in the lives of these children? Have you faced discouragement? As you seek to stand for Christ in your family, perhaps, or in a work setting? in an academic school to, li- to live for the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the way out? What is the deliverance that God can provide in the midst of discouragement and disappointment? How can you and I not be sidelined when the accuser of the brethren comes to seek to discourage us. Well, these are the reasons that I think God has given us Ezra chapter five. When we come to Ezra chapter five, verse one, we read, we understand that we have moved 14 years from the reign of Cyrus to that of Darius the first. He came to the throne, I'm not going to throw around many dates, but he came to the throne in 522, and he reigned until 486. And he was committed to an ancient religion, Zoroastrianism. Uh, He established it as a state religion. It focused on a conflict between good and evil. And the people of God, we find them here in Ezra chapter 5, at a point of being abject, downhearted depression. So down were they that they gave up the work that God had called them to, the very purpose for which they were delivered from Babylon and rebuilding the temple. Um, We read even at the end of Chapter four, as Pastor Bolt was teaching, that they did not even want to see another brick or trowel. They were done 
They wanted to hang it up. Perhaps you might feel like you're ready to toss in the towel on something. Well, Ezra 5 teaches us how to deal with discouragement. I just have a couple points. We're not going to look at all the finery of the passage. First point, the word of God. How do you deal with discouragement? How do you deal with being spiritually fatigued? You turn to God's word. God did not forsake his people in the midst of their own dejection. Nor did he let them wallow in their own self-pity. We read here in Ezra 5 that he sent to him his prophets. He sent two prophets to proclaim his word, to spur them on to action. We read of the names Haggai and Zechariah that they prophesied to the people or to the Jews in Judah. This is the first voice from God, as it were, since Daniel prophesied 16 years before in the third year of Cyrus. And it's been 16 years since the temple foundation had been laid in Ezra chapter 3 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. It's 16 years later. And the work was no further to completion. But we read that then Zerubbabel and Jeshua, Jeshura set them to work. It is because of the bold and faithful proclamation of God's word that dealt with their discouragement and gave them uh, an antidote, antidote of hope and confidence in God. And it's a reminder how much we need God's word. Oftentimes when we are discouraged, we look inside of ourselves or we may, and God can use other people, turn to someone else. But there is a power associated with the word of God in such a way that when we are deeply discouraged, when we are spiritually burned out, when we're ready to toss toss in the towel, that he himself speaks to us by, through the Holy Scriptures, by his Holy Spirit. Haggai began his ministry two months, only two months before Zechariah. And Haggai preached, as we read in the book of Haggai, four sermons. Only four sermons are recorded in a three-month period. But God used that preaching to have a significant impact on the people of God. Both Haggai and Zechariah preached with authority. They preached in the name of God. They communicated what God had made known to them. 
And yet they were different people. They had different personalities. Haggai was clear. He was direct. He rebuked. He corrected. He was plain. He didn't mince his word. Derek Kidner describes him as the plain speaker who dots every I. While Kidner describes the prophet Zechariah as provokingly enigmatic and visionary. He was gentle. He provided encouragement. But both of these men, God spoke and used their personality for his glory as the word of God came to bear upon the people. With Haggai, the people were snared by their, they were caught up with their worldliness. Uh, They were building their own paneled houses while neglecting the house of God for many years. And all of their time and energy spent on themselves amounted to little. They planted much, but they harvested very little. They ate, they drank, but they never had enough. They put clothes on, but they were still cold. They never had their fill. Their purses or their pockets had holes. As we come to Ezra chapter 5, there's a contrast with the great enthusiasm, the resolve of 16 years before when they first returned and took up the trowel and the brick and the stones to the work that God had called them to. But the years had taken their toll on them. Let me ask you, do you have the same uh, spiritual enthusiasm, spiritual desire in your life now as you had at an earlier time? Has the rot of disillusionment or worldliness eaten into your own soul where you've become lethargic, Well, God has given us this passage that in times of spiritual lethargy and decline, that we might know there's hope and there's help. And that hope and help is through God's word. God's word gets God's people moving. I mean, if you think about it, think about, and and I know I'm just focusing on, on just one little point here. There's so much more to the passage, but think about the Reformation, the darkness over so much of the world over Europe. There were pockets of some light, but largely gross ignorance and spiritual darkness. And it was through the preaching of the word and through the personal study of the scriptures by the people of God that the light of the Lord Jesus uh, dawned. And God did a great work of renewal and revival. Uh, Luther said it wasn't him. It was God working through his word. And the other reformers would agree with him. One, one final thing on this before we look at our next couple points. Where we read that the prophets in verse 2 were with the people of God. We were reminded at lunch today that spiritual leadership is 
to be that of an example, to be a model. Leaders are pace setters with God's people. They lead by their own example. And here the prophets are down in the ditch, in the trenches with the people of God and the work to which God had called them to. So we have, first of all, what, what, how can we deal with the discouragement, the battle that we face? First is the word of God. The second is a reminder of God's covenantal presence, that God is with his people. You know, God has promised. Uh, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you, referring to the Lord Jesus. You know, he indwells us by his spirit as we are Christians, trusting in Jesus. And we have the confidence that he is a covenant-keeping God, that he's ever with his people. So they get back to work. The word of God does its effect, its result. The people are now busy doing what God has called them to do. And as they begin their work, we learn that two Persian officials come. They appear in Jerusalem to conduct an investigation. They come with a question. Who has authorized you to build and restore this structure? Why were the Persians so interested? Perhaps a concern about a revolt. Perhaps uh, the Samaritans in the land were disgruntled, not being allowed to help. Perhaps because we read of their rapid progress in verse 8 of chapter 5. But we read, while this investigation is underway, they continued the work that God called them to do. They didn't abandon it. They didn't lay it aside. They didn't say, well, we'll just wait until we get the report of your investigation. No, they weren't intimidated They didn't halt. It's because the word of God engenders courage and faith. But associated with that is the promise. Look in verse 5. We read in our passage here in verse 5, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. This is the very presence of God. He was with them. He was watchful. He was aware. And they had this sense that the almighty covenant God was with them in this great task to which they had been called. There's so much more could be said about this. But we have the covenant presence of God. And the third factor I think the final thing we'll we'll look at tonight was a a gift of repentance. In the description to these two Persian leaders, the people of God give an explanation of their history and how it is that they came to be building this temple once again for the great God of Israel. And they speak of God's great work, how that they were a people in the land. 
and how that they were removed from the land by the Babylonians and how that, I'm giving a quick synopsis, how Cyrus, the king, instructed them to return to the land and rebuild the temple. And then there is this comment in the midst of all of that, you know, as they're describing themselves as servants of the great God of heaven and earth, this great king referring to Solomon who built this temple years ago, they explain why the temple was destroyed. Why is it that they were uprooted from the land and taken to Babylon? Look at it in verse 12. Our fathers angered the God of heaven. They acknowledge that it was the sin of the people. And I actually glanced for a moment. I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any stretch or imagination. I was looking at all kinds of books to help me. But it isn't, the word here isn't a word used to blame those who went before them. They're not accusing or blaming those who went before. It it is a, a word used where they understand that they too had sinned against God. And they were acknowledging their sin. There's a an element of repentance here that they had their part to play, that they were imperfect, that they had taken to heart what the prophet Zechariah, excuse me, prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah had said. You know, acknowledgement of our need of God, coming to terms with the truth about ourselves that we need God and we need his mercy, we need his forgiveness on our lives is the first step to a restored relationship with God. And it is a way out of being spiritually downcast, failing to acknowledge sin, seeking to cover it up. Think of Psalm 32, uh, when David did not confess his sins, his bones were rotting within him. But when there's that genuine confession So, there's so much in this passage, but the way out of their discouragement, their spiritual depression, their being burdened by the labor that God had given them to do is that they rediscovered the word of God, that they knew God was present with them and his covenant faithfulness. And of course, all of this is related to their genuine attitude of repentance for their own sin, the acknowledgement of their own need of God. And we're no different than the people of Ezra's day. We need as Christians to know the presence of the Lord. We need to be delivered from a inordinate love of the things of this world and we need to have the joy of repentance Um, C.S. Lewis in his little screw tape letters 
talks about discouragement as a particular and an effective weapon of our adversary, the devil. Uh, he says, and I'm, I'm rephrasing it in the Christian way of putting it, not his writing style. Satan doesn't need to get us to overly rebel or hate God. He only needs to distract us with discouragement. And then Derek Kidner and his little commentary on this passage writes this, Satan lurks behind the scenes as is his frequent strategy, content to lie hidden, hoping that the Lord's servants will forget all about him and take their frustration out on God instead. Well, how thankful we are for the word of God, for uh, the joy of his presence with us, and the great liberty that comes from genuine repentance. So let's spend a few moments together bringing our praise to God, rejoicing in his word, that he is a God who is ready to forgive us, that he is also the one who is near us. So let's have a season of prayer together as one people pray aloud one after another. And while people people are praying, you can join in uh, silently. Let's go to our God together in prayer.